You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hello, you mob out there. Welcome to Mob Got Talent. I'd like to pay my respects and acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations, of the Woiwurrung and the Wurundjeri peoples. And now, I know you're waiting for it, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Mob Got Talent, Alice Guy, ladies and gentlemen, and her band.
And now, the winner is... <laughs> we have no winners in Aboriginal culture. That's something of the past, the colonial past. There are no winners with Mob Got Talent. Everybody, every individual is a winner in their own right. So good night, folks, and remember, each and every one of you have got the power within you. Use your indigeneity. Good night, sweet dreams. And there was Jack Charles there in that song with Alice Skye, Stay in Bed. That song was part of Alice having three of her favourite performance performers accompanying her in her Fox live show, Mob's Got Talent. Entertainment plus start to finish kicking off with profound words from the excellent Uncle Jack Charles. The song is about depression and days you spend in bed but I wanted the video to be the other side of that, the black excellence and strength we carry to, how black joy is medicine and moments when we are together celebrating ourselves and healing. Outside my family, I didn't get that a lot growing up and it made me feel very isolated. That's a quote from Alice Sky there towards the end of the article and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, starting off with... Um, one aspect of Jack Charles' contribution that in the public domain there, and yeah, sad to see that Jack passed in the last recent times. And you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. Thanks to Rotations for the previous hour. And I'll go more into Jack, but I think first we'll go into... Just announcing that I'm broadcasting over the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation, nations. Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. Genocide is ongoing. And so is the resistance. And I'm Iris, a white settler, giving you this next hour of broadcasting here on 3CR Community Radio. And in, on that aspect of resistance, there's a rally you can get behind on this Thursday, abolish the monarchy rally, 1.30 p.m., 22nd of September, 2022. Meet at Barung Ma, sovereignty never ceded, land back, stop black deaths in custody. More detail to, co- to come, and I'll also provide links to that in the show notes. It's been, yeah, striking how much attention is given to monarchy and this authority that's unaccountable, that's just completely epitomizes stolen wealth. It is pretty gross and it's all over the mainstream media. So definitely help out building that protest. If you can't make it on in person, have that conversation around yeah, the systems and who benefits from them and who doesn't. So Vale Jack Charles. I was thinking about how in a recent interview with Marissa Spasaro on Doing Time, he was looking forward to compensation for being a member of the Stolen Generations, but he never really got it, did he? It's like the ongoing justice of the colonial regime in Victoria. And yeah, amazing gay Vic Aboriginal elder, 
Bungarong, Jajabarong, Wurong, and Yorta Yorta. Brother, uncle, to many in Kulin Nations, First Nations community here. I know a lot of people are hurting, so yeah, thinking of everyone hurting who knew Jack and extending my condolences to everyone hurting and I know it's been a had been a sad time. Also comes after some pretty horrible horrible deaths in custody in so-called Victoria as well of Gunnar men and also the death of Archie Roach and Archie Roach and Jack Charles collaborated and were close as well. And a quote from Jack in the Star Observer in 2019 talking about a message for younger LGBTIQ Indigenous, Indigenous people and I quote Jack, but always watch your back because we're not in a gay world. We're living on the fringe of society. Like Indigenous people, we're fringe dwellers. So us gay and Indigenous mob, we're fringe dwellers twice over. And that's what gives us great strength. That was a quote from Jack Charles there in the Star Observer in 2019. And yeah, sort of one of the themes of today's show will be a bit around criminalization, but also around queer celebration, queer dance, because I'm going to be speaking to Raina Peterson later in the show. But before that, I'll be playing an interview with Matthew Mitchell, who did a study on criminalizing gender diversity in so-called Victoria. So that's what I'm going to play first for you on Crewing the Air today. And we also might have time to air some more audio from Justice for Rodri Vigil that, that Jacob um, aired one speech at later in the show as well. So we hear from Dr. Matthew Mitchell about criminalizing gender diversity in so-called Victoria. A content note for this interview about general discussion of violence in the criminal legal system. Please reach out for people, um, support like Switchboard if available. We know for people inside, these options are cut off. You know, you get paid like $10, $20 a day for full out, full like day's work. And that's like one, one phone call really if you're inside prison. So anyway, we'll go to the interview. I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Mitchell from La Trobe University, one of the authors of the recent study Criminalizing Gender Diversity, Trans and Gender Diverse People's Experience with the Victorian Criminal Legal System. Thanks for joining me, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. First, would you like to tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I teach and research at La Trobe University, where I'm employed as lecturer in crime justice and legal studies. Um, I usually describe myself as a critical and queer criminologist. And my research is broadly concerned with anti-queer violence, both in physical and non-physical forms, harms related to gender and sexuality, um, and the way that both uh, researchers and legal institutions understand and respond to harms related to gender and sexuality. So yeah, that's kind of me and the work I do in a nutshell. Cool. Thank you for that. Before we get into the study, and this is a part of it really, but could you summarize why many trans people are disproportionately criminalized by the state? Yeah. So um, it's quite quite a complex question. I think um, there are sort of two 
ways to think about the reasons why trans people are disproportionately criminalised. So um, the first would be uh, more direct or what we might call primary forms of discrimination. So this might be, for instance, that trans people tend to be over-policed. Indeed, um, queer and gender non-conforming people in, in general tend to be uh, over-policed or be kind of disproportionately subject to policing. Um, and that might be because queer and gender non-conforming people are perceived by police or criminal legal institutions as being uh, somewhat always already deviant, so inhabiting a category of, of, of non-normality that, um, that brings them into um, a position of suspicion um, or uh, being perceived as somehow dangerous by police and criminal legal institutions. Um, and that's the kind of discrimination that has a really long history. So we know that queer and trans people have long been the targets of censure by criminal legal systems, um, which have been in many ways set up historically to uh, prevent, punish and control sexual and gender non-conforming behaviours. And so that history very much endures. In the present, we see those same dynamics um, play out. Um, so that can mean uh, violent or contemptuous interactions with criminal legal agents and institutions, um, and also range to more sort of um, dismissive or uh, uh, unsensitive responses from those institutions as well. So that's kind of one part of it. The other part of it would be what I might describe as, as, as less direct, but no less um, severe structural forms of, of discrimination. So this would um, be understanding disproportionate criminalization as the effect of uh, structural and systemic oppression. Um, so we might say, for instance, um, uh, trans people are much more likely to experience homelessness than cisgender people, especially in, um, in their youth. And something like that might mean that they are much more likely to come into contact with criminal legal agents and institutions, um, for instance, by participating in what's commonly described as survival crimes. So using, um, turning to illicit means to support themselves um, in the absence of, kind of traditional familial support and things like that. Um, so yeah, kind of two ways in which, um, or two, two forms of, or two processes that might account for the disproportionate criminalization trans people are subjected to. Thanks for that. So building on that question, how does race, gender, class, ability, and sexuality play into that disproportionate criminalization? Yeah, so that plays a really, really significant role. And that's something that, um, is the case across the criminal legal system. So, um, all of the evidence that, that we have would suggest that um, the sort of the further you are away from a able-bodied white male heterosexual cisgender um, settler norm, the more likely you are to face disapprobation from the from the criminal legal system. Um, and that's certainly been reflected in um, international studies of, of trans people's experiences with, with criminal legal systems. Um, so there's every reason to believe that each of those factors would play a really significant role in affecting trans people's experiences and outcomes with the criminal legal system. Um, so one study that was conducted in the US, and, and it's, a bit, it's a bit old now, but nonetheless quite important, estimated that roughly half of black trans people in the US will experience incarceration at some point in their lifetime, which is um, really shocking and um, yeah, reveals quite um, clearly that racism plays a really clear role um, in affecting people's experiences. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely know from the advocacy around black deaths in custody here that that affects Aboriginal trans women, sister girls, 
disproportionately. And in terms of the research, could you tell listeners about the research and some of the key findings? Yeah, so the research was a collaborative project um, between academics, uh, activists, community orgs, and lawyers. And um, it was set up to basically build a, an initial knowledge base of, of how trans people are experiencing um, criminal legal systems and processes in Victoria, responding to a real dearth of knowledge in this area. So we set up two surveys to, um, to sort of capture the experiences of, of trans people themselves who had experienced um, the criminal legal system and also lawyers who had experience working with uh, trans and gender diverse clients. We had uh, 42 participants in total. So as far as our key findings go, um, we, 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 in essence, found that trans and gender diverse people are being um, discriminated against and experiencing um, quite significant oppression in all areas of the system um, and in a great diversity of ways. So we found um, trans people and lawyers reporting uh, really poor knowledge base across the sector about trans and gender diverse people in general, um, ranging from how to use basic courtesies like correct pronouns um, and names um, to a lack of understanding regarding trans people's unique needs and vulnerabilities when interacting with the system. Um, we found that trans people have almost um, uh, almost un, uh, unanimous adverse experiences with police, so reporting instances of direct discrimination like profiling or um, violent encounters, as well as dismissive or contemptuous encounters, for instance, when reporting experiences as victims of crime. Um, we found that trans people had been uh, subjected to inappropriate questions and mocking and ridiculing statements in um, legal uh, practices and in courts. Uh, and we found really significant um, experiences of, of violence, harassment and abuse in carceral settings like prisons. So um, widespread harassment and violence from other prisoners as well as from prison staff, um, denial of access to um, necessities for gender affirmation like hormone therapy, clothing, makeup, um, re refusal to place trans people in their preferred um, prison and access preferred housing arrangements. Um, as well as reports of, of, of quite intense experiences of violence, for instance, things like um, sexual assault and rape, both by other prisoners as well as prison staff. Um, and we found that when trans people have, have reported these experiences of violence, that they have been um, disbelieved, um, victim blamed, or simply told to get over it. So, um, yeah, some really uh, shocking and horrendous findings have come out from this study. Yeah, it paints a, an oppressive picture of the Victorian criminal legal system. And if I recall correctly, it, it goes up the hierarchy, including judges, I think was quoted in, in your study. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and we, yeah, we, we've uncovered several instances where um, judges have, have behaved in um, rather disrespectful, um, if not contemptuous ways towards trans people. But, and we've also found that... Um, trans professionals, for instance, transgender and gender diverse lawyers have experienced um, ridicule in courts um, as part of their professional practice as well. Um, so that's right, like the, the study really shows that um, essentially all areas of the system 
have these oppressive dynamics operating. Yeah, for sure. So I guess if you read the mainstream media only, you would find that trans people are pretty much the opposite, in the opposite position as in the material reality. Trans people are oppressing, like, non-trans people in the prison system. There's, there's a climate of anti-trans sensationalism in the mainstream media and in major political parties, as we saw, particularly in the last federal election. What are the responsibilities of people in academy doing the kind of work that you are doing? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so I guess the first thing that I would say to that is that uh, we have a really core responsibility to challenge and refute that rhetoric. Like exactly as you say, um, the rhetoric that's being promulgated in the media is is actually quite the opposite of the reality. So the media um, has been reporting or constructing rather trans people as, as um, dangerous um, in carceral settings as say posing a, a risk to cis women's safety when placed in um, a women's prison, um, when in fact the opposite is is true. And so I think we have the real a real responsibility to to challenge and refute that rhetoric. And from a position of, um, of of fact, you know, this is this is the research, and we we have found this to be true. Um, but I think more than that, we also have a responsibility to uh, to conduct research and create knowledge that can genuinely contribute to responding to and redressing the harms that trans people are experiencing with the criminal legal system and knowledge that can be used to dismantle the structures that are producing those harms. Um, and I think it's a really complicated position. Um, you know, I, I, I work within criminology and, and criminologists as well as researchers more generally have very much earned a distrust from the community and from people who are affected by criminal legal systems. Uh, and so we have, I think, a deep responsibility to, well, re-earn our trust, maybe one way to put it, but actually work to sort of undoing the, the harms that we've contributed to as well. Um, and one of the ways that I think we can do that is, is, for instance, like we did in this project, by partnering with um, community organisations and advocates and activists and working with people with lived experience um, to make sure that those voices are heard and privileged and respected. Yeah, for sure. There is um, that ongoing issue with if research isn't accountable to the people that are, that are the research, I guess, like participants and subjects. Uh, so where to from here? Yeah, so there's a lot of things, um, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. So um, one of the things that we discuss in the, in the research paper is that research like this, so research concerning gender and sexual minorities is really marginal um, in the academy and, and elsewhere, um, and especially in criminology. And so um, from here, I think there needs to be a real shift in terms of research priorities to take research concerning gender and sexual minorities much more seriously um, and to expand our, our knowledge base. Um, but kind of beyond a, a research um, perspective, I think that a lot needs to be done in terms of policy and advocacy. So I think that, um, you know, government government departments and other state bodies need to take findings like this seriously and actually respond to it from a policy perspective. Um, Organisations like the Victorian Ombudsman should open investigations to generate um, more knowledge in this area that can be used um, to 
to reform and, and dismantle the systems that are contributing to these harms. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, hopefully um, as that knowledge grows and, um, uh, and, and more understanding is generated that activists and advocacy organizations can use that knowledge as, as a resource to um, push for change. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. It's uh, like, you know, this is some of the first research that's ever been done in Australia investigating trans and diverse people's experiences with the criminal legal system. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a really long road ahead, but I, I hope to see, yeah, I hope to see um, a lot more done in this space. Awesome. Thank, thanks, Matthew, so much for joining me on 3CR Queering the Air. Thank you so much. And you're listening to their Dr. Matthew Mitchell from La Trobe University talking about criminalizing gender diversity in so-called Victoria. There's lots I think about when I think about these issues myself and is something that's really concerning when you think about the explosion of numbers in prisons in so-called Victoria. We have more people in prisons per capita under the Daniel Andrews government than... We have more people than ever since 19th century is the last time there were so many people inside prison. And we're one of the most heavily policed states in Australia because of the two-decade law and order rivalry, the racist royal, the racist law and order rivalry between the coalition and Labor that particularly was fueled by anti-black violence some years ago. And that, that guy, Matthew Guy, is opposition leader that led some of that scare campaign so, yeah, it's pretty messed up. We need to do more organizing and more solidarity with people inside, I would suggest. And one project that listeners can get behind is Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is a peer-led community project that provides direct support to trans and gender diverse people in prison at risk of incarceration and those returning to their communities from prison. And you can put Beyond Bricks and Bars in your search engine. And I'll provide a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, and I think even in recent news, there was a cop that shared the custody image of Danny Laidley in a way that many perceived as being really unfair to... a trans person that wasn't out and really messed up, and that that cop is keeping their his job. So that's Victoria Police for you. Let alone like the indignity, like the more important indignities that happen every day for trans people inside prison. Anyway, so up next we'll be going to an interview with Rena Peterson. So stay tuned for that on Queering the Air. And I'm joined now by Raina Peterson on the line. Can you hear me, Raina? Yeah, I can. Hello. Awesome. So you're presenting Narasimha Manline at Fringe. But before we go into that, would you like to tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Okay. So, um, hello, my name is Raina Peterson. Um, I'm a dancer, choreographer. Um, I'm most Fiji Indian and... Um, English heritage, and I was born and raised on the lands of the Gwinnai, um, Gwinnai Kronai people in uh, Gippsland. 
and now I live and work on Wurundjeri land here. And um, I've got my, my dance training is in a form of classical Indian dance called Mohini Atam, which comes from Kerala, which is in the south part of India. And I use my training in this art form to create experimental dance works, exploring um, gender, sexuality, time, uh, identity, diaspora, cool stuff like that. Um, so this is my first solo show. I've got like um, mm. four works that I've done with my dance partner, Govind Pillay. And um, so that they were um, In Plain Sanskrit, uh, Ben's Bollywood, Third Nature and Kala and an award-winning dance film called um, Drishti. And yeah, we're still working together, but this is my first little foray into um, solo practice. And yeah, I'm really excited to be doing that. <laughs> a bit nervous and a bit like, oh, Gorbin, um, what would he say about this? Um, but yeah, it's been kind of fun to sort of, I guess, um, yeah, doing my own thing a bit. Um, we're also doing something together at the State Library, um, I think it's the week before Narasimha. Um, mm. so if you want to see us perform together, you can like go to that as well. <laughs> I think that's a free event. Um, what yeah. Else? Yeah, I definitely recommend listeners check that out because, yeah, I have had the privilege to see you dance quite a few times um, some years ago now and incredible dancing and I can't, yeah, I can't really kn know what you've got in, in store for everyone without being there and without listeners being there. Um, so in terms of the piece, could you talk more about um, Tamil poet, saint, and Dahl's devotional poem that inspired the piece? Yeah. Thanks for your kind words, Iris. It's lovely. <laughs> um, yeah, so this uh, work is about... Um, so there's a Hindu deity called Narasimha, and he's um, the seventh, I think, incarnation of uh, the Hindu god Vishnu. Um, and I've always been really drawn to this deity because, like, in classical Indian dance, because I love depicting him because <laughs> he's, like, really violent and scary. <laughs> and I, like, it's really fun because in classical Indian dance, it's not just abstract dance. It's also, like, a um, storytelling and, like, emotional kind of quality. Like, emotion is, like, a huge part of, like, the aesthetics of, um, well, a lot of all Indian performing, performing arts, actually, um, all South Asian performing arts. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoy this um, deity and because um, I like sort of portraying those, um, those fun kind of qualities, like it's kind of cathartic and interesting to sort of explore that um, violent and, um, yeah, that kind of scary, fierce energy. I really like that. And um, so Andal is a... Um, she's super cool. She was like this... Um, a poet saint from like the 8th century in Tamil Nadu, which is uh, just above Kerala where Mohini Atam comes from. And um, 
she was amazing. Like she, she like she was a, a poet, and she wrote um, two um, two big collections of really like beautiful and iconic poetry. Um, and she was sort of later sort of she kind of became a saint. And um, yeah, and I guess like the story around her, she was also kind of deified as a as a goddess as well. Um, so yeah, the whole story is really cool, but um, her poetry is like amazing because it's like um, it's from the like the Bhakti movement in South Asian history is very cool. It's like um, it's like a it's like really religious movement where instead of um, relying on priests to mediate um, our relationship to the divine, the Bhakti movement was about where we have our own personal relationship with God. Um, so it's quite radical in a um, social and political way, but it kind of also gave rise to like really beautiful artwork. <laughs> and so her poetry is part of this movement where it's about expressing like a personal relationship to the divine. Um, but her poetry is, um, I guess, known for its uh, sensuality and its eroticism and its uh, very romantic um, qualities, like the, like her devotion um, to God, has this very kind of visceral, visceral, sensual quality, which I think is um, really beautiful. And um, yeah, and so I was kind of really drawn to this poem of hers. Um, which and there's a verse of it because she's a devotee of Lord Vishnu, and so there's one poem where there's a verse um, to Narasimha, who, as mentioned, is an incarnation of Vishnu, and um, yeah, and like just sort of see, like hearing the or reading the um, this kind of sensual, romantic um, verse for Narasimha, whom I associated as this very fierce deity. I found that very um, moving and beautiful. So um, so it sounds like my work is very complex and is exploring a lot of different ideas, but it's not really. It's actually... Um, so I was, I was kind of, like, drawn to, like, both, you know, my sort of maybe more conventional um, idea of Narasimha. Um, you know, there's a very visceralness about his character. Like, he... Um, like in the story of Narasimha, like he disembowels a king and um, adorns himself with the entrails of this king. You know, it's really quite um, graphic <laughs> and and um, and full on and very visceral. And there's a similarly um, Andal's poetry. The sensuality of that is also very visceral with the um, like the. the depiction of, of nature and, like, the um, the emotional, devotional quality. So I guess, like, this work is exploring, um, kind of linking these two, um, well, linking, really drawing from the, the one source, which is um, Andal's poetry, to, just to depict, I guess, a quality of visceralness. And whether that visceralness comes from, um, you know, blood, violence or whatever and entrails <laughs> or mm. from, you know, the, the petals and the honey from the flowers falling and, um, 
and someone's longing, like it's still this quality of, of visceralness, mm. I guess. And that's what I'm trying to explore. And I guess like um, I see like even though, you know, Andal was straight <laughs> um, as far as we know. And I, I guess like I see this as a sort of queering exercise in the sense that um, there's something about um, being other. And like Narasimha is like, you know, half man, half lion. And, you know, as a, as a non-binary person <laughs> and bisexual and mixed race person, like I really kind of resonate with the whole idea of being in between mm. something and being a bit monstrous, I guess. And so I kind of like... And the sensuality of this and the whole kind of idea of a monstrous, like being drawn to the monstrous or being being drawn to, yeah, being drawn to what is other or in between or monstrous, like there's something kind of queer about that. So, um, yeah, I guess those are some of the ideas that I'm kind of exploring in this work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sounds <laughs> fascinating and a unique work that you're, you're doing. Um yeah, so I was wondering about doing a solo work. Is there also a, lot, yeah. a bit of collaboration involved in that? And what are the challenges in doing a solo work? Yeah. Um, well, I've been well. I've been working with Gorvin for like uh, ten years. I don't know, a really long time. We've been working together for like years, and so for us to get together and make something, it's like super easy you know like we just get together we'll have an idea and then bang 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 we've made a show like it's actually mm. quite um miraculous how fast things happen between us and we think um in fairly similar ways like there's something like our way of creating work is quite it's um it's very visual and sensorial and intuitive and we're very interested in emotion and um, the audience's journey and our own journey. And um, it's been really interesting sort of collaborating with <laughs> non-Gorvind people, <laughs> um, other um, dancers, because I, cause the reason why I know that our work is visual and intuitive is, is because I've worked with other people whose work is very, I know, cerebral and, um, and like, may not have that sort of attention to, um, like, emotion or, or image that we do. So it's been really interesting, like, as a dancer, sort of collaborating with other people and then sort of, you know, settling back into my <laughs> my home collaboration with Govind. So, um, I, yeah, so some of the challenges is that I don't have um, another dancer to... Um, help me fill the space of what mm. the concept is um, asking for. But some of the um, freedoms is that, you know, Govind is trained in Bharatanatyam and I'm trained in Mohiniyatam. Mm. And so in order for us to um, create a sense of cohesion um, in our work, we rely a bit on the structure of classical Indian dance. And... Um, which is which is what we have in in common, like that that kind of structural framework. So I guess as a solo artist, I can I'm free from that structure. <laughs> you know, I don't need to worry about um, having cohesion with another dancer. So that's cool. 
but this work is still collaborative. Like I'm collaborating with um, musician uh, Marco Shergabard, who will be. Um, we're still working on the music, so you know things may change. Don't hold me to this, but um, yeah, we're thinking that this is going to be a combination of pre-recorded and live music, where Marco is playing the prepared guitar, and the prepared guitar is like it's a guitar that's kind of put like facing upwards on a stand and then he kind of um, puts objects on it <laughs> and um, like the, so it kind of uses gravity to kind of um, create the, the sound, if that makes sense. So like mm. he'll put a tray on, on top of the guitar and the tray will be kind of moving and that'll create a different like sound quality. Or he might put like a hammer <laughs> or a screwdriver. He'll thread a screwdriver through the um, through the <laughs> strings of, of, of the guitar and like touch it, and that'll create a, a sound. And so, um, so the sound that you can make on the prepared guitar, like it can be like in the stuff that we've done together in the past. Like sometimes it sounded really metal. Like it sounded really like intensely metal and fierce and demonic and fabulous. Um, and other times it sounded like really like ethereal and, um, and delicate and, and ambient. And so it's got quite a lot of potential for like a huge <laughs> spectrum of like um, sound qualities. So we're going to be, yeah, working with um, that <laughs> and working with some pre-recorded stuff, which may include like some sounds from my actual cats. Um, which, which will be exciting. So, yeah. So I guess my collaboration with Marco, like we've we've started, we've been working together for like um, a year or two. Yeah, no, more than that. Yeah, I think two years. And um, yeah, it's been really like fun, sort of like collaborating with someone who isn't a dancer, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, who has like yeah, like coming from a like a music. Um, backgrounds and having like the sound really inform the the choreography and um, and also vice versa. So yeah, so it's been fun sort of exploring a different kind of collaboration. Yeah, sounds exciting. Um, in terms of seeing the show, it is on in mid mid October, and you can get your tickets at Melbourne Fringe. Nineteenth to twenty second October. It's at Temperance Hall. Um, on the twentieth, there's going to be audio description um, for um, audiences who are blind or vision impaired. Um, we're also going to have a relaxed performance. Um, it, I think it's currently written down as on the twentieth, but I think we might need to change that because that's when the videographer is coming. So. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so um, order description on the 20th and um, get your tickets at the Melbourne Fringe website or I think St. Prince Hall possibly as well. Yeah, and this is this work has been a commission by um, Arts Access Victoria and Fringe as part of their Radical Access program. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on Queerings. Yeah, Raina. Thank you. So lovely talking to you, Iris. Yeah. I hope you are well. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the best with the performance. Thank you so much. It's been so nice being on Queering the Air again. Yeah, it's so nice to talk Love to it. you.
Cool. Okay. Have, have a, a good day. day. Bye. Bye. And that was Raina Peterson there talking about their upcoming performance, Narasimha, Man Lion. And you can find tickets to that at the Fringe website. And now we're going to go to some more audio from the vigil in memory of Rodri that you would have heard some from Jacob's show some weeks ago. And it was held in Melbourne on the September 4th at 11am on the Parliament steps. Rodrigo Ventasilla was a Peruvian transman activist and Harvard student who died in Indonesian state custody in August after traveling to Bali on a honeymoon with his husband. He was targeted based on his gender and race and detained after state authorities found traces of cannabis under Indonesia's draconian drug laws. And this speech sort of goes into that sort of context a bit. I want to say some things about the situation in Indonesia. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri owners of this country, of the Kulin Nation, on whose lands we're here today. Um, yeah, it's so sad. I, I think, um, sadly, these problems are not particular to Indonesia. Um, of course, there, there's a devastating problem right here um, with Aboriginal deaths, deaths in custody. Yeah, the, the situation in Australia with, with transgender people, the situation in prisons, um, and the criminalisation of drugs, these are also problems here. Um, yeah. um, these problems are particularly severe in Indonesia. Um, first of all, um, state-sanctioned violence is nothing new in Indonesia. The, this is a nation drenched in blood that has not had a moment's peace for centuries. And then after independence, um, when the hopes of the nation for a better world um, were drowned in blood in 1965 in the massacre of the Communist Party, between half a million and three million people butchered. And that's the context in which this has happened. Um, if things had happened differently in 1965, maybe we wouldn't be here today. Maybe that it would be a different Indonesia today if that had not happened. Um, yeah, I Indonesia's drug laws are some of the harshest in the world, um, including the death penalty. And most of the people who die um, under the death penalty because of drug, uh, um, in Indonesia, it's because of drug offences. Um, you can go to prison for four years for for having um, for smoking a joint in Indonesia. Um, and this war on drugs has been getting worse since 2015. It's a full-blown moral panic whipped up by the gov government and the media. And yeah. Um, Indonesians as well as tourists are impacted. Um, yeah, and, and this is such a, such a gross injustice against Rodrigo. Um, somebody who should have been welcomed as a guest in Indonesia. Someone who wasn't doing anything wrong, just wanting to have a nice time, just, just wanting to have a honeymoon with his husband. And this happens. Um, 
as well as the situation of, of Rodrigo. There are, in Indonesia's prisons, over 260,000 people are held in Indonesia's prisons. Over half of those people are in there over drug-related offences. And um, prisons, the, the war on drugs, Indonesia's war on drugs has pushed the capacity of Indonesia's prisons, like it's well beyond capacity. Um, prisons are so, so overcrowded and it creates massive health issues. Like, can you imagine the COVID transmission in a um, prison designed for 600 people and it's got 2,000 people in it? Um, yeah, it, it's, there's hygiene issues, health issues. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a dignified way for a human being to live. It's not justice. Um, yeah, and as well as that, it does nothing to, um, <laughs> you know, people don't stop taking drugs just because they're in prison. It's totally possible to acquire drugs in prison in Indonesia. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and concurrent with this war on drugs in Indonesia, there's also a moral panic going on about LGBTI people. Um, this has also been happening since 2015. And might I add, under the government of Jokowi, who was supposed to have been elected on a progressive leftist platform. Oh, I'm so angry. Shame. Jokowi raised the hopes of the people that there could be a better day in Indonesia. And now this has happened. Oh, I was hoping I wouldn't cry. <laughs> yeah, since 2015, um, there has been a rise in um, yeah, websites being shut down, hate speech in the media against LGBTI people, um, big anti-LGBT protests whipped up by this media storm, parties raided, um, queer couples evicted. Yeah, big wave of injustice. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a, there are laws um, under discussion now. Like, homosexuality is not currently criminalised in, in Indonesia, but it's on the cards. There's, there's forces pushing for it. Um, yeah, and I, I want to add that um, a lot of these issues tend to get lost in translation in Australia. Um, like because Indonesia is a Muslim minority country, majority country, um, some people, yeah, but because of the Islamophobia in Australia, people sometimes blame Islam for, for this. I, I don't blame Islam. Um, although a lot of this anti-LGBT anti rhetoric is often framed in religious terms, it's just not a fact that, um, that, that, that there's no unanimous condemnation of LGBT people in, in Indonesian Islam. There are very strident Muslim leaders who are pro-LGBT. Um, and I hope they can um, weather the current storm. Um, and yeah, put on them. Yeah, so I, I want to say um, 
instead of this moral panic against against drug users, against LGBT people, why not tackle the real problems facing the nation? What about corruption? Which is not just on every level of government, also on every level of society. People bribe their way through school in Indonesia. People that bribe their way to get a driver's license. Um, <laughs> Not to mention on the highest levels of government, in the police, in the prisons, corruption is everywhere. And the public is angry about it. But to divert the anger of the public, they want to whip up this thing about drug use, narcoba, LGBT. Ah. And what about, what about tackling the impoverishment of the nation? Um, by transnational corporations based in the West, including in Australia. What about Santos, the mining company, based in Australia, that is partly responsible for the, the displacement of, 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 of tens of thousands of people in Sidoardo, East Java, um, in 2006, the, the victims of which have still not been compensated. The mining company that, that, um, that caused a massive environmental disaster, a, a volcano, a mud volcano that drowned in, drowned in an entire town. You know, why, why doesn't the government, not just the Indonesian government, but also the Australian government, take on these issues? Instead of diverting people's attention from the real injustices. Yeah, this is a government for capital, not for the people. Um, but you know, there, there's hope here. Um, even though we're, what, 15, 20 people, I, don't, I, I haven't done a head count. Every skerrick of organisation um, is worthwhile. <laughs> and um, I, I think Indonesia has fallen off the radar um, of people in Australia a bit. Like under the, when Indonesia was under the Suharto dictatorship, there was more organization in Australia. Um, but um, yeah, and then people kind of forgot about it when that was overthrown and East Timor got free. But yeah, we're here today and um, I'm so happy we're here today. At least we're here standing up about an injustice that happened in Indonesia. Um, yeah, and in memory of these, yeah, of Rodrigo, and um, what, what, what a beautiful smile, what, what, what a lovely face he had, <laughs> just looking at his photo, what a lovely guy he must have been, and um, yeah. that, that's, that's all I want to say, um, I, I hope we can come back again, uh, uh, um, about future issues like this, about trans rights um, affecting Latin American people, affecting Indonesians, anybody in the world. Thank you. Yeah. That was uh, some audio from the vigil in memory of Rodri on September 4th in Nam, Melbourne. You've been listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. Sexuality
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.